The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Loosening the Grip of Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, Updated Strategies for Timely Diagnosis and Disease-Modifying Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GYW860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Great. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our talk today, which is Loosening the Grip of Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, Updated Strategies for Timely Diagnosis and Treatment. I'm Anjali Owens from the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Neil Lakdawalla from Brigham and Women's Hospital. And our goals today are to sharpen your skills on suspicion of HCM, diagnosis of HCM, and we'll talk about new therapies that are available for this condition. Okay, let's get started. So the first segment will be about heightening your awareness um, and the rationale for increasing suspicion of HCM. So with a little bit of epidemiology to start, we know from worldwide studies um, that the prevalence of HCM ranges somewhere between 1 in 200 to 1 in 500 individuals. Again, this is worldwide, affecting men and women equally, and people of all ages can have HCM. With those uh, estimates, we think that there are 15 to 20 million people living with HCM worldwide. Many of these patients are undiagnosed, partially diagnosed, um, or diagnosed late. So not everyone that's living with HCM knows it. Um, the causes of left ventricular hypertrophy um, in many cases is HCM, and within that group in 40 to 60%, we can identify a pathogenic variant in a sarcomere gene, which is listed on the left of the slide. But in the other cases, 25 to 30%, it's either unknown or perhaps a polygenic risk that we're learning more about in terms of how to classify patients and understand that genetic risk. And in another 5 to 10% of patients, they have left ventricular hypertrophy that may look like HCM, but it's actually something else. And that's where our infiltrative or storage diseases, um, diseases such as amyloid, um, and other syndromic causes may lay. So I would encourage you in your clinics as a first thing is that when you see left ventricular hypertrophy, don't stop there. Look further for the cause of left ventricular hypertrophy. And in many cases, you'll be able to diagnose HCM or perhaps another condition that has a targeted therapy. When we do diagnose genetic HCM, we know it's the result usually of a sarcomere variant. And so pictured here as a schematic of the sarcomere, and you can see the vast majority of pathogenic variants are in myosin heavy chain and in myosin binding protein C. We'll talk a little bit about the underlying pathophysiology of HCM and what we think is happening with uh, too many cross bridges forming between actin and myosin, leading to hypercontractility and left ventricular hypertrophy. And we'll talk towards the end of the talk about how our newer therapies target this underlying pathophysiology. So what we see in a clinic as a result of sarcomere variants is over time, adverse neurohormonal signaling that leads to diastolic dysfunction, in some cases, outflow tract obstruction. We get adverse remodeling of the left ventricle with hypertrophy, with fibrosis, resulting in arrhythmias, and of course, our most feared complications, sudden cardiac death or heart failure symptoms. 
Here's the hemodynamic classification that we typically use. And again, think of this as somewhat arbitrary as a continuum of patients that are non-obstructive, which we define as an LVOT gradient that is less than 30 millimeters of mercury. There are two um, subtypes that you can see there with an apical variant and then a more septal predominant variant. In the middle, we have pictured the obstructive hemodynamic subset where you get a gradient greater than 30. And again, and you can see the more classic phenotype with LV outflow tract obstruction and pictured there is systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve here. And then we have a mid-cavitary obstructive uh, phenotype, which is pictured in the middle. With this phenotype over time, you can get um, formation of the left uh, ventricular apical aneurysm. And then finally, we have what we call the latent or um, uh, provocable obstructive phenotype, where your gradient is less than 30 at rest, but with Valsalva or exercise, uh, you can provoke obstruction. We know that HCM is associated with significant excess mortality. This occurs across the age spectrum. Patients who are diagnosed early in life with clinical HCM do have a worse prognosis in terms of having complications of death, heart failure, and significant arrhythmia. But even in the older ages, we do see excess mortality. When we look at phenotypic expression um, by sex, we can see some differences between women and men. This gets back to one of those pretest questions. But we generally see women present in a more advanced stage of disease. They are older at the time of diagnosis. Um, they're more symptomatic with more diastolic function, dysfunction and more heart failure. Now, the reasons for this are not entirely clear, but we do wonder if perhaps our somewhat arbitrary cutoff of 1.5 centimeters of maximal of uh, and diastolic wall thickness may have something to do with this. Women are tend to be smaller, smaller body size, and perhaps a thickness of 1.5 is already signifying significant hypertrophy in those smaller individuals. We also think that uh, women's symptoms as reported are perhaps misconstrued or attributed to other causes, including anxiety and other things, and that um, healthcare professionals are less likely to consider HCM until further along in the disease course. We also look at conflicting data with regard to African-American or black patients versus white patients with HCM. And there are some studies in the literature that report no differences or few differences. And there are other studies that report more um, basilar hypertrophy, more apical aneurysms. Um, and the genetic cause of HCM in our African-American or black individuals is not well elucidated um, because of the lack of inclusion of those individuals in our large genotype data Bases. So we need to do much better than we are in terms of getting our African-American or black patients into clinical studies and into our clinics, our specialty clinics, to be seen. So we've made some headway over the past few decades um, in terms of improving mortality by use of in, uh, defibrillators to reduce the incidence of sudden cardiac death. We have widespread use of ECHO in many places, at least in the U.S., which is helping with earlier diagnosis. But we have a little ways to go, and uh, particularly in the realm of septal reduction therapy, we know that that's a specialty procedure that's not widely available. And so depending on your socioeconomic status or your geographic status, you may not have access to high-volume centers or specialty HCM centers. And we hope that some of the newer therapeutic options may allow patients to access um, new care. 
Let's move to the next segment, which will be Dr. Lakdawalla talking about the differential diagnosis of HCM. Thank you, Dr. Owens. So many of us know how to think about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when a patient comes to us in clinic and with a big stack of notes and a diagnosis of HCM, but at the front line, sometimes it's more ambiguous. And it's nice to step back and think broadly how patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy often first present. So their symptoms can fit with just about any cardiovascular syndrome with exertional dyspnea, dizziness, syncope, angina, and palpitations as prominent symptoms. And maybe one of the early tip-offs that HCM is underlying this or the variability in their symptoms um, dependent on day-to-day factors, meals, ambient temperature. Careful family history is often um, a tip-off to an underlying diagnosis of HCM. We know that like most inherited cardiomyopathies, it's inherited in a autosomal dominant fashion. So when we put together our careful family tree and identify male-to-male transmission without skip generations, that would make the case, but not always so obvious. Sometimes those family histories are notable for deaths which are unexplained and require a little more digging to understand what drove them, um, or it could include premature stroke or even heart failure and transplant. On exam, we, of course, listen for a murmur, and we try to augment or manipulate loading conditions to bring out what is classic in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So with the Valsalva maneuver or other maneuvers that will decrease preload will often ex- um, extens- accentuate the murmur of HCM. If we're looking at patients to tell us how they feel when they were, before they were diagnosed with HCM, they'll tell us that dyspnea is the most common symptom. This comes from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, a patient advocacy organization that polled their patients. Um, exercise or effort intolerance is prominent along with dizziness, palpitations, and chest discomfort. We're working as a community to try to better measure the symptom burden of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And much like the KCCQ has helped to inform um, uh, quality of life metrics and and heart failure writ writ large, there are disease-specific quality of life metrics being developed for HCM. And one is listed here with Domains separated by the types of symptoms, dyspnea, fatigue, um, broader cardiovascular symptoms. And again, recognize that their symptoms can vary based on day-to-day factors. The temperature, when they've eaten, um, whether they've had anything to drink, or maybe all of the above. What do our guidelines tell us? Well, our guidelines tell us the same thing. Look for the same symptoms, the family history, listen for a murmur, look for an abnormal ECG or echocardiogram. And once we're there, the basic clinical evaluation should include a careful three-generation family tree, of course, a complete exam, 12-lead ECG, an echo with provocative maneuvers. So this is where you want your sonographers to be good at um, getting uh, multiple perspectives of the outflow tract um, at rest and with Valsalva. An exercise echo, especially if there are uh, symptoms of exertional dyspnea to assess for latent obstruction, as Dr. Owens had mentioned, and a cardiac MRI, uh, if available, when um, measures of wall thickness and cardiac morphology may not be as well captured with 2D echo. Genetic testing plays an important role, especially in understanding who in the family is at risk and may add to our understanding of global prognostic awareness. 
What about just the EKG? Can we make do with a simple 12-lead ECG as a, as a screening test? Um, we look for left ventricular hypertrophy, repolarization abnormalities, Q waves. But it turns out that just as a screening test, the 12-lead ECG falls short. So this is data that comes from the Johns Hopkins HCM clinic. And the most common ECG abnormality was um, some form of repolarization abnormality. Altogether, about two-thirds of patients had a repolarization abnormality, T-wave inversions or ST-segment depressions. This was followed by left atrial enlargement and then our classic LVH criteria that we learned about in medical school. And importantly, almost 20% of these patients had a normal ECG. So a 12-lead ECG is not enough. Patients need cardiac imaging if we suspect HCM. Does echo do enough? I think in many patients, echo does a great job at characterizing left ventricular remodeling, but there are patients who have suboptimal windows where uh, the value that cardiac MRI provides can be crucial for making a diagnosis. So one is how much hypertrophy. We know that the magnitude of hypertrophy plays a, an important role in our understanding of sudden death risk. And here is a representative 2D still where we measure the septal thickness at 21 millimeters. And then um, on the bottom panel, there's a patient who has left atrial and to a lesser extent right atrial enlargement, but nothing apparent in the left ventricle, largely because of acoustic windows. But with cardiac MRI in both cases, we can see that um, management is impacted by better fidelity images. So in the top panel, a better measure of wall thickness, which can have prognostic ramifications. And in the bottom panel, where 2D echo poorly characterized the LV apex, we got a good picture uh, from cardiac MRI. Some of this, of course, can be overcome by using echo contrast. So what can trip us up? How can we overlook a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Some of it is a diagnosis that is carried forward or clinical inertia. So a patient comes to you and says they have exercise-induced asthma. There's nothing to see here. But of course, this is a classic diagnosis in younger people who have obstructive HCM where um, it, uh, you, you, you have not done the proper imaging to make a diagnosis. Mitral valve prolapse. Um, can cause a systolic murmur. Um, another pitfall in, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, occasionally the murmur is um, dismissed as not being associated with pathophysiology, and that's where you want to have a good assessment of cardiac remodeling, and cardiac MRI may be useful. Um, patients may not ever get to see a cardiovascular specialist and have their symptoms attributed to superintentorial factors. And then um, perhaps most alarming, patients who've had syncopal episodes may um, have this attributed to a neurocardiogenic mechanism or a vagal episode. Um, there are other causes of left ventricular hypertrophy that we need to consider when evaluating a patient for suspected hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. One is very common, amyloidosis. I think as a community, we've learned to appreciate in large part because of the prognostic and therapeutic ramifications. And then a number of either storage or phenocopies are listed here. Broadly, one general tip-off, but not always the, the differentiating factor, is that these are usually a cause of, of um, concentric hypertrophy. And with the exception of amyloidosis, several of them are associated with pre-excitation on a 12-lead ECG. So a pseudo-delta wave can be a sign of a metabolic cardiomyopathy like Fabry, PRKG2, or Danon disease. And several syndromic conditions have other extracardiac features like neuropathy, um, CNS factors, and even some uh, 
um, skin findings. So we'll shift to a case. This is Alan. He's a 43-year-old man who presents to you for exertional dyspnea. Um, he has had fatigue in conjunction with this, a couple episodes of exertional lightheadedness, and you categorize him as having functional class 3 impairment. Um, his blood pressure was 110 over 70. Heart rate was 55, and you had arranged genetic testing um, based on the echocardiogram I'm about to show you, which was negative for a sarcomere variant. And here is his 12-lead ECG. Here are some representative 2D images, one with color Doppler. On the left panel, we can see preserved left ventricular systolic function. The septal wall thickness is increased. There is systolic anterior motion of the anterior mitral leaflet. And on the right panel, there is some left atrial enlargement. Again, hyperdynamic or at least preserved systolic function with septal thickness and flow acceleration in both the mitral coaptation point and towards the outflow tract. Um, so Doppler images taken from the same patient in a three-chamber view at the left ventricular outflow tract show that um, there is flow acceleration associated with a pressure gradient at rest of almost 50 and with Valsalva 86 millimeters mercury. So what is Alan's diagnosis? So great, obstructive HCM, you're here. Everyone's had some coffee, so. Next time we're doing a damning yeah. case, that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. So agreed. All right, so what, so what do we do? So surgical approaches to managing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We've, this is our tried and true, has been um, a therapeutic option for decades now. So according to the, the guidelines last published in 2020, um, here are our, 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 our consensus recommendations for when surgery is useful for a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And you'll see, in general, these are all second-line options. So first-line therapy for a person with preserved systolic function and non-obstructive HCM. We still have our old standbys of beta blockers and then L-type calcium channel blockers. How well they work is, is I think, a valid question. For people with systolic dysfunction, this is a high-risk patient population, HCM patients who no longer have a hyperdynamic ventricle, we should use guideline-directed medical therapy as we would for any patient with HFREF if they had been on a calcium channel blocker or, or disoparamide because previously they had outflow tract obstruction, those drugs should be stopped. And this is a high-risk patient population that the guidelines have now advocated be strongly considered for a defibrillator. For obstructive HCM, first-line therapy or um, non-vasodilating beta blockers or L-type calcium channel blockers, we should avoid things that will cause our patients to become um, to have a low preload, so um, high-dose diuretics, for instance, and vasodilators. Surgery slots in as second line for each one of these. For the rare patient who has preserved systolic function, profound diastolic dysfunction, and associated heart failure, sometimes we do offer transplant in that patient. Um, for patients with LV systolic dysfunction, if CRT or resynchronization therapy um, uh, uh, is considered in patients who have a wide QRS and a left bundle, and again, heart transplant, and this is really where transplant is used most frequently in HCM. And then, of course, what we're here to talk about, obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, septal reduction therapies in patients who fail first-line medical therapy. 
But when we look at a, a, a large cohort of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy from the SHARE registry, now nearly 10,000 patients strong, um, about one-fifth of the patients um, at that macro level need septal reduction therapy. So this is a big number of people. Maybe not the most common outcome in the lifetime of a patient with HCM, but up there just behind needing a defibrillator or, or having atrial fibrillation. Our two options at a cartoon level are a septal myectomy and an alcohol septal ablation. And our surgical colleagues will make an aortic incision on bypass and through the aortic valve resect the proximal interventricular septum shown on the left of the panel. And um, alcohol septal ablation requires suitable coronary anatomy. We need a large first septal perforator. We need to make sure it doesn't subtend anything else important uh, so, it can, so we can infarct it without um, causing unt untoward or unexpected damage. Um, and I have here uh, an algorithm for when we would consider septal reduction therapy. And I think the most important thing I'd emphasize is that it's important that your operator has done this before, that they have experience doing septal reduction therapy. And so when we decide between alcohol septal ablation and septal myectomy, that's probably our first question. But in a, in, if all things are equal, if the patient otherwise needs surgery for either coronary artery disease or um, mitral valve disease that's not from SAM, then surgery is going to be your choice. Um, often patients will make uh, will vote with um, for alcohol septal uh, ablation to avoid um, uh, midline sternotomy and the typical recovery from surgery. And then there are some iterations to the plan that, um, especially in high-risk patients, where we can use some of our, um, our, our newer, invasive, um, less invasive approaches like a mitroclip or, um, or PCI in patients in a hybrid approach. Um, I think this is a new take and a new way of representing something we've known for a long time, that for these specialty operations, uh, we, we, we want our patients to have them done at a center where They've done more than a few. So these are data um, looking at um, the hazard ratio associated with septal myectomy um, as a factor of how many procedures are done at that institution. And we can see that there's a steady downward trajectory in risk um, as you have your procedure done in a center that's done more. There are some selection um, and ascertainment biases here for sure, um, but uh, we do need operator experience. Um, earlier on, uh, Dr. Owens had touched on some of the um, disparities as, in uh, medicine as they relate to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And at a macro level in septal reduction therapies, we've learned that um, uh, patients who have um, obstructive HCM um, are more likely to have a septal myectomy if they're treated at a teaching hospital, if they're um, Hispanic. Um, they're much less likely, um, or, or if they're non-white, much less likely to receive uh, septal myectomy for outflow tract obstruction, and maybe it associated with increased risk. And same is true for women. So we talked about closing um, the gaps in treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I think one of the important outstanding ones is ensuring that patients uh, be afforded um, best practice when it comes to managing obstructive HCM. In this case, it may mean septal myectomy or alcohol septal ablation at a highly experienced center. And from this um, perspective, some of our novel therapies or newer um, options may close the gap um, by offering an equal uh, playing field to patients regardless of where they are. Dr. Owens. 
Thank you. So we will go through a little bit of clinical trial data, um, talking about new therapies for HCM. We're starting with the first-in-class cardiac myosin inhibitor, Mavicamptin, which was FDA-approved in April of 2022 for the treatment of adults with symptomatic class 2-3 heart failure from obstructive HCM to improve functional capacity and symptoms. So we'll go through a little bit of data about this uh, drug. And the way that it works is by reducing hypercontractility. So you take a heart with, hi- with HCM, which is typically hypercontractile. And at the sarcomere level, you'll remember that I showed a sarcomere. And what we think causes a hypercontractility is excessive actin-myosin crossbridge formation. And this drug reversibly inhibits some of those cross bridges, thus reducing or modulating left ventricular contractility. This is the Valor HCM crossover trial. So the original Valor HCM 16-week data was presented by Dr. Desai just a year ago at ACC. Um, And those patients that were randomized to placebo for the first 16 weeks then had the opportunity to cross over into active treatment for the second 16 weeks. So this is 32-week data um, from the Valor trial. And what we saw in the original Mavicamptin group, which is listed at the bottom on the left, again, 100% of these patients were eligible and under consideration for septal reduction therapy. So this was a sicker group of patients. Over 90% were class three. They were all eligible for SRT. Um, And the original Mavicamptin group by week 16, only 18% were still eligible for SRT, whereas in the placebo group, 77% remained eligible for SRT or decided to undergo SRT. So in the crossover trial, what we saw is that when uh, patients started Mavicamptin, so again, this was the placebo group up until week 16, then they crossed over to Mavicamptin, and you can see by week 32, they met up with their colleagues who started on Mavicamptin from the beginning with pretty substantial reductions in resting in Valsalva LVOT gradients. The magnitude of reduction was similar to what we saw in the pivotal phase three trial, the Explorer trial. Here is data also in that 32-week group looking at placebo in green crossing over to Mavicamptin at the 16-week crossover point. And we saw an expected small drop in left ventricular ejection fraction in the range of about 4 to 5% um, in patients who were treated with Mavicamptin. And again, this is because of the mechanism of action of reducing hypercontractility. Looking at uh, markers of diastolic function, we saw that there was a reduction in the septal E to E prime ratio. And again, once patients crossed over and got active drug treatment, they met their colleagues who started off on Mavicamptin um, with significant reductions in E over E prime. 
When we look at NYHA class, which is somewhat crude and interestingly does not always correspond with gradients in our patients with HCM, we did nonetheless see an improvement in NYHA class in the group of patients who were on Mavicamptin versus placebo. And you can see that listed here. And again, the group at 32 weeks who started off on Mavicamptin, so this is the group at 16 weeks, started off on Mavicamptin, 63% had an improvement or greater than equal to one functional class. By 32 weeks, we're up to 91%. So they had additional further benefit um, by being on Mavicamptin for another 16 weeks. And the placebo to Mavicamptin group was similar to where the initial group was at that 16-week mark, suggesting that 16 weeks is good to show a benefit, but perhaps longer-term therapy will give us additional benefits. Certainly, we're not seeing that um, it plateaus or, or goes away. We're seeing sustained benefit through those 32 weeks. This will be the KCCQ data. This is coming this morning, so be sure to, to tune in for that, showing the improvement um, in KCCQ for patients who were in Valor um, in that 16-week endpoint. Here, there is a lot more data coming from the Explore HCM trial, and again, that's the pivotal phase three trial that led to the uh, FDA approval of Mavicamptin. Um, Dr. Wong from Duke will be presenting uh, two presentations in subgroups of the Explore trial, and Dr. Kreshi from uh, WashU will be presenting two more um, uh, sets of data, again, in subgroups from the Explore trial, so be sure to tune into those. Dr. Saberi and Dr. Masri will be presenting additional long-term efficacy data. Dr. Saberi will be presenting on MRI data. And again, this is very interesting, 96-week data on MRIs. We're all very interested to see what is going to be the long-term effect of remodeling in the patients who are on Mavicamptin for this many years. Um, and Dr. Masri will be presenting even longer-term data. So these were the true pioneers, the pioneer OLE study, which was the phase two study. Those patients, some of them have been on Mavicamptin now for four plus years. So this is the longest term data that we have. Um, and my own colleague from Penn, Dr. Riza, will be presenting some real world data that we've gathered at our institution since FDA approval. So tune into those. Next, let's talk about the next in class agent. This is Afficamptin, again, a cardiac myosin inhibitor, a reversible inhibitor of cardiac myosin. This uh, drug has a shorter half-life, so we do titrate it more quickly um, because you can reach steady state quicker, and I'll show you some data about clinical trials in Afficamptin. So the first is the Redwood HCM trial. This was uh, very recently published now data. Um, and this is a phase two study. The design was a randomized trial, Afficamptin versus placebo. All patients were on background standard of care therapy, which was either beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. All patients were symptomatic with severe obstructive HCM. This was a dose finding study. The doses are listed at the bottom with cohort one, including lower doses and cohort two with the higher doses. Looking at the change in gradients, again, both resting and valsalva gradients, you can see a dose-dependent, really uh, you know, remarkable reduction 
an gradient that started as early as two weeks in the Afficampton cohort one and cohort two versus placebo. And again, a similar uh, nice reduction that's sustained that we saw in the uh, Valsalva gradient. Now at week 10, that was the end of treatment for this study. And then there was a two-week washout. And importantly, we like to see that the gradients went back up to baseline. So this is a reversible drug, um, both Afficampton and Mavicampton. Here's the LVEF effect with um, Afficampton. And again, by mechanism of action, we expect a small drop in ejection fraction. This is the way the drug works. So as cardiologists, we have to get used to modulating contractility in these patients and understanding what those uh, small drops mean. Importantly, no one dropped below the threshold of dose reduction, which was set here at 50% in our patients with HCM. Here is some data both on hemodynamic response, which is on the left, and also NYH response. So these are two responder analyses that were done in the Redwood study. And you can see a dose-dependent improvement in hemodynamic response. And we defined a complete hemodynamic response in this study as a resting gradient below 30, which you'll recall is our definition of obstruction and a Valsalva or provocable gradient less than 50. And in the higher dose Afficampton cohort two, a remarkable 93% of patients reached that hemodynamic uh, response threshold. I'll call your attention to Afficampton cohort three. This is an open label cohort, which included patients who were on AV nodal blocker and disopyramide. So this was the first study of disopyramide with afficampton in conjunction. Um, this was a much thicker group of patients, as you might imagine, who were refractory to disopyramide plus AV nodal blocker. These are very hard patients to treat if they don't want septal reduction therapy. And in that group, we did see a response, but not quite as ro a robust response. This cohort was mainly done for safety. So the higher dose of afficampton was not utilized in this cohort three, but it will be looked at in the ongoing Sequoia HCM study. You can see an NYHA response, again, very similar to what we see with Mavicampton with over 60% of patients um, reporting an improvement of greater than or equal to one class. Now, uh, Afficampton cohort three, again, open label, and we know there's quite an effect from NYHA on open label, so I would just take that with a grain of salt. There are two um, poster presentations or moderated posters that are being presented on Afficampton here at ACC. So again, I encourage you to tune in to these. Dr. Saberi, who's busy this meeting, will be presenting long-term data on Afficampton in patients with obstructive HCM. And Dr. Masri, also very busy, will be presenting new data on non-obstructive HCM. So again, this is an, a nice population to think about. This is going to be the next horizon in terms of cardiac myocytes and inhibitor therapy. Um, so this should be very interesting data. So as, as clinicians, where do cardiac myosin inhibitors now fit into the management of our patients with obstructive HCM? So if you look at our first-line therapies, and Dr. Lakdawalla walked you through what the guidelines say in terms of what to do with our patients who have symptomatic obstructive HCM, you know, the Mavicampton Explorer data would suggest that if you have a patient either on a beta blocker or a calcium blocker, they remain one symptomatic two with a high gradient that you can add in Mavicampton as add-on therapy as was done in the Explorer trial with significant benefit. 
In terms of the second line therapies or patients that are sicker, there we're looking at whether or not patients want to go septal reduction therapy, whether they're candidates anatomically to undergo septal reduction therapy. Um, many of those patients are offered disopyramide as second line therapy. And based on the Valor data, we have phase three data from Valor showing that um, addition of Mavicamptin on top of optimized medical therapy can provide additional benefit in terms of gradient reduction, symptom improvement, and patient-reported uh, symptom improvement. So what do you need to know about Mavicamptin? Mavicamptin was approved by the FDA with a REMS program, so risk evaluation and mitigation. We expect that the ejection fraction will drop by a bit in many patients who are treated with Mavicamptin. And again, that drop is around the order of 4%, but of course will vary by patient. Um, and you don't want to initiate Mavicamptin in anyone whose left ventricular ejection fraction is less than 55%. And again, that gives you a margin to have a little bit of reduction of contractility and still not get into any sort of um, issue with systolic dysfunction. This is also important is that if your LVEF drops to less than 50% at any point when treated with a cardiac myosin inhibitor, you need to temporarily interrupt therapy, allow that ejection fraction to return to the above 50% range, and these hearts will return to their baseline if given enough time, and then you can restart the therapy at a lower dose. Another very important point about Mavicamptin, there are significant drug-drug interactions that need to be taken into account. So at every point that you're seeing a patient who's on Mavicamptin, you need to run through their med list and check to see that there are no new prescriptions or over-the-counter meds that they are taking that may have an interaction. And we encourage all of our patients to let us know and let the specialty pharmacy know if they're starting any new therapy. Um, the REMS program includes a training for prescribers, for pharmacists, and you really cannot uh, prescribe or dispense this drug without going through the REMS training, at least at this point. So let's look at the incidence of uh, left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50% reported in the phase two and three trials. Um, and you can see here the non-obstructive uh, HCM population, which is the maverick population. This is a little bit of a different bear, and I think we're going to have to think carefully about how we utilize cardiac myosin and inhibitors. There will be trials coming, um, looking at this on the phase three level. This was a phase two study. And in this dose finding study where they were pushing to, uh, you know, PK levels, we did see up to 12 and a half percent of patients have a temporary um, reduction in LVEF to 50, 50, less than 50 percent. In the obstructed population, much less so. And again, you can see the, the data listed here. So back to our case, and then we'll take some questions. Um, a 43-year-old man that Dr. Lochtewell presented, Alan, who was feeling very fatigued, dysmic, having exertional presyncope, which again is a worrisome sign in an obstructed HCM patient, class three by history, um, blood pressure normal. He had a resting bradycardia because he's on metoprolol at very high dose. Um, and he had no uh, causative genetic variant identified on genetic testing. And again, this was a trick question that Dr. Lactuella gave you, but this is still obstructive HCM. Even with a negative genetic testing panel, we know that we do not pick up um, you know, all causes of HCM on our current genetic testing panels. 
So here are his, his echo images again. You'll remember he's got systolic anterior motion of his mitral valve. That's part of the mechanism by which we're seeing LV outflow tract obstruction. Um, with that, Sam, you're seeing uh, you know, flow acceleration in the LVOT, posteriorly directed sort of eccentric mitral regurgitation, which is typical of SAM-related MR. He's got a dilated left atrium, a thick septum, and as we typically see, a normal to hyperdynamic um, ejection fraction. So what are the therapeutic options for this patient? What would you do for him in terms of treatment? His resting gradient is 47. His Valsalva gradient is 86. Let's see what Dr. Lockdewell Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great example of how we can tailor our therapies to our patient's wishes and their other extenuating factors. So disopyramide has been around for a long time. I think the efficacy is okay, not, not been demonstrated in the same rigorous fashion as we would like. Drug is not always available. There's some important side effects. He does not have a prohibitive QT interval, so it would be reasonable, especially in the past, if he didn't want surgery. I think this would have been a an easy slam dunk for SRT, a patient with class three symptoms in spite of max dose beta blocker in the past, but now with myosin inhibitors. And based on your conversation with the patient and their wishes, um, I think a Mavicampton option would be entirely reasonable as well. Um, yeah. That's my favorite. So, you know, this young man is a, a police officer in Philadelphia, um, and he was not keen on taking a medication for the rest of his life daily. So he actually opted to undergo surgery, septal myectomy. He's done very, very well, um, fortunately, with no complications and is back to work and feeling great. So that was his decision in this case. And I think that's probably it. So we're happy to take some questions. There may be questions online um, and also certainly from, from the room. Yes. Um, in the original study, when you were um, uh, looking at gradients, uh, were the uh, echocardiography readers blinded to the treatment? Uh, uh, you know, versus placebo group. That's one question. Yeah. So the Echocore Lab was blinded to treatment assignment. Um, all they had was a study ID. In fact, so. The study physician, the patients, and the echo core lab was blinded to um, treatment assignment. Okay. And then the second thing is, um, do you have um, things that you can tell us about MRI findings, um, you know, pre and post? Thank you. So, in, yeah, so in the Explorer Pivotal Phase 3 study of Mavicampton for patients with mostly class two obstructive HCM. There's a subset who underwent MRI before and after. And then um, as Dr. Owens mentioned, Dr. Saberi will be presenting even longer term MRI data. So we know from the first half that there is a modest reduction in LV mass in the magnitude of, of maximal hypertrophy and um, perhaps most encouraging a reduction in left atrial size. So left atrial volume index is also reduced with Mavicampton therapy. Um, the longer term data would suggest that that improvement stabilizes. So it's not that year over year over year, we're seeing further reduction in LV mass. Um, there are there was a very low burden of late gadolinium enhancement in the subject populations in this study. Um, to understand how this impacts that form of cardiac damage picked up on cardiac MRI. But that is, that is, that's still an evolution in the long-term extension data. 
Thank you for this talk. Do you have any information about prospect of uh, pediatric teenagers for Mavicampton? Yes, I think both um, companies that are making cardiac myosin inhibitors are interested in doing pediatric trials, so I think we'll see those coming soon. Uh, every once in a while, I'll see a patient with a combination of valvular and subvalvular obstruction, now not severe AS, maybe mild, moderate AS, and then some component of subvalvular obstruction. How do you handle, diagnose, treat someone like that? Great question. Often a conundrum that we see too. Um, you know, I'm interested to see what uh, what Neil thinks. At Penn, we generally we do a heart team approach, so we do get our surgeons, our interventional cardiologists involved, um, and often we are doing concomitant. AVR and myectomy if the degree of AS is severe enough. In a case where the AS is not as severe, I would say that we are now uh, tempted to use cardiac myosin inhibitors in select cases where there's definite SAM and we think the predominant uh, mechanism of obstruction is the dynamic component as long as there is less than moderate or to severe AS. But I think, you know, um, it's a Got to give it some thought. I think. What, what would yeah, you no, do? I totally agree. A clinical conundrum, and and um, I'd restrict that to the patients with mild aortic stenosis, where maybe you're not so sure what the magnitude of the gradient is, but you're not as worried that this is a patient with symptomatic valvular stenosis, because I do I, I worry about the risk of uh, of precipitating heart failure in that patient population because they need their contractility. And those are people who are excluded from the clinical trial, so we can't really rely on our clinical trial data to guide us. Thank you for the uh, excellent talk. Uh, I just have a question regarding Afficampton versus Mavicampton. In real-world practice, provided that the phase three trials of Afficampton go as expected, as providers, which one or ones would we choose? And why or why not? It's a, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I can give you my take on it. I think it's good for us to have choices. Just as we have two beta blockers or calcium blockers, I think that there is going to be certain patient populations that may benefit more from one drug versus the other. We still need to see a clear differentiation of the two agents and what might be best in one patient population versus the next. What we know so far is that Afficampton does have a shorter half-life, so you can titrate it more quickly than you can Mavicampton. I think it'll be interesting to see the results on drug-drug interactions. That may be another potential differentiator. Um, but you, you can imagine, you know, the, the times that we've seen in the long-term extension and then so far in the real world with Mavicampton, where pe people may drop their ejection fraction, is in the setting of an intercurrent illness. And that's the situation, rapid AFib, significant pneumonia, where you can imagine the patient needs their contractility a bit more. And so if you have a patient like that where you're expecting that this may happen in their future, that may be someone who you want on a drug with a shorter half-life. On the other hand, if you have a 20-year-old who's going to skip their pills here and there but is very low likely to have a significant um, you know, septic event, et cetera, then you might choose a drug with a longer half-life. So I think that, um, in my opinion, it's, it's better to have choices. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And I think the, the one point that Dr. Owens made earlier that's always worth keeping in mind with the drug-drug interactions in particular, and this relates maybe more to Mavicampton, is that these are often over-the-counter drugs, and you, you do need to carefully survey for very commonly used medications, in particular omeprazole, um, drugs that you, you don't always ask your patients if they're getting over-the-counter Prilosec. 
So um, I think as we think about making choices between the two, one is going to be how drug-drug interactions are going to impact the safety of the two. But I completely agree that it's great to, important to have choices. Thank you. Uh, your comments or recommendations on uh, management of uh, symptomatic but technically non-obstructive versus almost sub-obstructive uh, HCM. So I think the question was how to how to clinically manage symptomatic, non-obstructive, and almost obstructive um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I, I'll take the second first. So almost obstructive, I think we want to really know that it's not just obstructive. And I think we all have case examples and experience with patients who on their first one, two, maybe even three echoes didn't quite have an obstructive gradient, but clinically um, had uh, a story that fits with obstructive HCM. And so what I do for those patients is make sure I get an exercise echo. Um, I make sure that it, at rest, I get a good quality Valsalva maneuver. And sometimes we'll use a postprandial echo in that context um, and have been a little humbled by the number of times I told a patient you don't have obstructive HCM and they're still symptomatic and then really kept testing and picked it up. I, I have not used pharmacologic provocation in that patient population, so have not used dobutamine or isopril to try to bring it on. But I, you know, I think that's a, a, a somewhat controversial area. And then the last is, do those patients go to the cath lab looking for an invasive diagnosis? And that's not something I've, I've typically used. I've tried to recreate day-to-day -day life a little bit more, which we can do with ECHO. For non-obstructive HCM, it's a tough patient population. So we diurese them if they're congested. Um, we try a beta blocker. We try a calcium channel blocker. Um, I, I think we, we appreciate that none of these have offered the degree of clinical symptom relief that we want to see in practice. And then we restratify. Is this a patient where we're trying our best with medical therapy, but they may need something bigger like cardiac replacement? I agree completely. Great. Any last questions? We have a couple questions online, and maybe I'll pose these um, to Dr. Owens. The first two kind of go together. So in a patient with a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they have a normal echo, um, would you do genetic testing? And then the, the, the sibling question is, um, how does one do genetic testing for confirmation? Where specifically can blood be sent and what is specifically ordered? Okay, great. So the first question, what we like to do in families is draw out that multi-generation pedigree or family history and identify the patient in the family who is, number one, affected with HCM. So we need phenotypic evidence of disease, meaning your echo shows hypertrophy, you clinically have the condition. And then we look to see how many of those individuals there are. And if there are multiple individuals, we would go to the patient who had the youngest age of diagnosis or the most severe phenotype. And that's the individual that we target to start the genetic testing. So we want to start sequencing the DNA in a patient who we know has HCM. Um, and then, depending on the results of that testing, if we're able to identify a pathogenic or disease-causing variant, then we use that information to risk stratify unaffected family members because we know once we identify that marker in the DNA, um, as Dr. Lochtewell said, it's autosomal dominant in most cases. It's a 50-50 chance that that variant is passed on to family members, first-degree relatives, and beyond. Um, 
And so then we would offer testing for the specific pathogenic variant in the unaffected family member who has a normal echo. And that tells us whether they're at risk to develop the disease at some point in life if they're genotype positive, or they're not at risk to develop the disease if they're genotype negative. And that, of course, hinges on the fact that we think that's the one and only cause of HCM in the family. And I've talked for so long, I forgot the second question. Well, those, you, you covered the I second question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, do we have time for one more? I think so. So, um, so the this is a, a question I think we covered a little um, last year as a community. So, what specific therapies can be considered prior to the onset of heart failure in a patient who has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? And so, and so this this question really I think is about disease modification. Do we have any therapies that? can prevent people who are at early stages of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy from going on to develop more advanced either remodeling and or symptoms. And, and the, the best data that we have comes from the VANISH study. So the VANISH study was a trial of Valsartan versus placebo in patients with early hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And early was defined by a couple different metrics, the absence of severe obstruction, the magnitude of hypertrophy, and using a multi-domain primary outcome, Valsartan did Im uh, improve um, or reduce progression of disease compared to placebo. That was a phase two study and not something that will be taken up, I think, in the guidelines and perhaps will be fodder for future therapies. Um, and Dr. Owens, are there any lifestyle measures which have um, impact on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? So any non-pharmacological therapies yeah, that have been know, studied? Yes, yeah, certainly. So in symptomatic obstructive HCM, we usually start by asking the patient how much they take in each day in terms of hydration. Um, and having a nice, full, preloaded left ventricle is, is good for obstruction. So we generally recommend that our patients drink at least 64 ounces of non-caffeinated beverages per day. They can add their caffeine in as well. Um, we usually recommend that they do a nice warm-up and a cool-down surrounding um, aerobic activity, and that they keep their intensity level in a moderate range. And again, if uh, patients wish to undertake more intense exercise, then we have a, a shared decision-making conversation with them. But we do recommend AHA-based guidelines for activity. We want our patients to remain active. We don't think it's good for anyone to become very sedentary. They become obese, hypertensive, and get all kinds of uh, comorbid conditions that we know. So we do want them to be, remain active, um, but to do it safely. Yeah. Anything else you would add? To no, that? I mean, I completely agree. We know from NHANES data that our HCM patients often become too sedentary. And um, our colleague, Dr. Saberi and Dr. Wheeler, Dr. Day studied a structured exercise program in people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So this was the RESET trial. And um, of course, not double-blinded, but randomized. And there was an improvement in functional capacity and some measures of quality of life in patients who were randomized to a structured exercise program. And it was safe. Um, within the confines of a modest study size and not a, a, a profound amount of exercise. Looks like we have one more question. What about the uh, super athlete with uh, pretty significant concentric LVH? How do you separate that person from someone who may have underlying hypertrophic myopathy? Take some time and effort. So I, you know, I would say we certainly start with a, you know, what I would say is a, a deep phenotyping. So that includes a CPET study, 
in many cases an MRI, so that we can really look at the morphology of the ventricle, see if there's any signs of scar, delayed enhancement, um, look to see that the patient really is as, as fit as they say they are. Sometimes you put them on a peak VO2 and they say, I'm very, very athletic, but their peak VO2 doesn't reflect that objectively. So I think, number one, you try to make those um, that fork in the road by morphology, looking to see that um, diastolic function is supranormal, looking to see that the cavity size is big and not small. All of those things can help us to differentiate um, physiologic hypertrophy due to you know remodeling from fitness versus pathologic hypertrophy, um, but in some cases it can be confusing. You know, and um, at times we've had patients uh, sort of detrain for a bit, a period of 16 weeks or so, and see if any of that hypertrophy regresses. Not many athletes that are super athletes really want to go down that path, but occasionally you know you could offer that. Um, Dr. Lactwell, any other thoughts? No, same deep phenotyping, and I think. As a community, we are also uh, more open to shared decision making. So, um, I think when when you reach that point, if things are still ambiguous, conversations can ensue. Um, but I think we need to convey that there is an increased degree of risk. It, but although not mentioned in our slides today, we look forward to Dr. Lampert's study today, the LIBHCM study, which re really examines um, arrhythmic outcomes in people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's a large study of nearly a thousand patients that I think will inform those conversations in the future. Uh, you will not get them to stop exercising. <laughs> yeah, we, I, you know, I've done it for a handful of people who wanted to go on and do professional sports. And so it was worth it for them to do a small period to show that it was reversible hypertrophy, and then off to the races they went. But again, I think now it's less likely that you need to do that. Yeah. Great. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GYW860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.